I invite you today to take your Bible and turn to John chapter 9. John chapter 9. We are going to uh, finish out John chapter 9. This has been quite a, a, a wonderful study over the last few weeks. Uh, I've enjoyed some conversations with some of you. You said, well, I didn't know all of that was in there. That was, that was really uh, an eye-opening thing. And it's a wonderful thing as the Lord uses his scriptures in our lives to draw us closer to himself and to show us who he is. And as, as we get to the end of John 9, it's the same interaction with the same man who's been the main focus of this chapter, uh, that Jesus healed this man who was born blind, as we saw that, that really this chapter is a, um, an illustration um, of, of who Jesus is as the light of the world. And the physical miracle he did of giving this man sight illustrates who he is, that he gives spiritual sight to those who come to him. And so as you get to the end of John 9 today, we see this, that the light of the world gives spiritual sight. John 9, 35 through 41, I invite you to follow along as we read together. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And when he had found him, he said to him, do you believe in the Son of God? He answered and said, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have both seen him, and it is he who is talking to you. Then he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. And Jesus said, for judgment, I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be made blind. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, are we blind also? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say we see, therefore your sin remains. Lord, thank you for the time we have set aside in our service today to study the word of God together. Thank you for recording these things, inspiring John, your disciple and apostle, to record these things for us to read today, preserving your word. Help us today to once again be faced with Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the Son of God, in whom there is eternal life, and help us to be encouraged in what we read and see in, this, in your word today. Convict us of our sin, Lord. Be with one who may hear these words today, who still has never placed faith in you. Oh, they may look good on the outside, they may do the right things and say the right words, but inside they are full of dead man's bones because they have never trusted you. Help them today to see Jesus Christ anew and afresh again. Give them the courage, the boldness, the willingness of their heart to place faith in you today. For Christians who are here today, who hear your word, encourage our hearts again. Draw us to our Savior. Help us to see that that we are called to live lives that give glory and worship to you and you alone. We ask that everything that's said and done over these next few minutes would, would give you the honor and the glory that you deserve. your name we pray. Amen. One of the hardest things to do in life is admit that you are wrong, and that you need help to make something right in your life. Now, stereotypically, who has a harder time with this? Men or women? Well, men, right? They're, that's the stereotype, right? 
And, and you say, well, you know, maybe I don't struggle with that. Well, I would argue there are stereotypes you know, sometimes for a reason. My father-in-law is very fond of a little saying he picked up from a comedian that goes like this. I am a man, but I can change if I have to, I guess. Right? As humans, it is difficult to accept that the truth we've maintained about ourselves, our situation, our needs, wants, or desires is wrong, and that we need something or someone else to make it right. And the truth is that until we're willing to admit that we're in the wrong in these situations or that we can't help ourselves, we will not find true and lasting change the longer we try to maintain the facade. And as we wrap up the end of John 9, we see this type of attitude as everything Jesus has done for this man who was born blind and all of the interactions that this man has had with others leads him to Jesus and the application of the truth of the gospel. And here, this man and others who are around him are confronted with their greatest need, salvation from sin in Jesus alone. They are also confronted with this great truth. The spiritual blindness of mankind requires the supernatural work of God in our lives. And what you see in this passage before us today is that because Jesus is the light of the world, I must confess him as the only hope for salvation and the only cure for my natural condition of spiritual blindness. Jesus is the light of the world. He proclaimed that in John chapter 8, and he has lived that in John chapter 9. And we, like I said, we have seen it so perfectly illustrated in that he gave physical light to this man who was born never ever being able to see anything. And now in just a few short days has seen all sorts of things. And now today in our passage beholds Jesus for the first time. And when he does, we see this truth that you and I are born with a spiritual condition that we cannot heal. And that condition is spiritual blindness. Because of your sin and because of my sin, we cannot understand spiritual things. We cannot spend eternity with God. We cannot seek out God on our own. It is Jesus who has to heal us. It is Jesus who has to shine his grace in our hearts and lives. And it is Jesus to whom we must run. And today, as you hear the message of John chapter 9, may you and I once again be confronted with this, that Jesus Christ has come to save us from our sin. And he alone is worthy of our worship and trust. And we see here in verses 35 through 38 the first of really the, just the two things we're going to look at today. That's, it's really a contrast of things put side by side. In verses 35 through 38, you see what spiritual sight looks like and how those who place faith in Jesus Christ come to it. In verse 35, you see the divine appointment that takes place because it says Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And that's the man that was born blind. And when he had found him, he said to him, do you believe in the Son of God. So if you go all the way back to John chapter 9 and verse 1, you would meet this man who was a man who was begging on the side of the road, probably a young man who was born blind. And from the very beginning, 
the disciples had asked Jesus, why, why was this man born blind? Is it because of his sin or his parents? And Jesus said, no, it, he was born this way that the works of God may manifest in him, that, that God's power will be put on display in his life. And since the beginning of this chapter, a lot has happened to this man in a relatively short amount of time. He was healed from a lifelong condition by Jesus, who then, Jesus, disappears from the narrative until we pick up our passage today. The man was then questioned by his neighbors on what had happened, and then they brought him before the religious authorities. We looked at last week all the questions they had about what had happened. And in the midst of his testimony and his challenges before the hostile Pharisees, his parents abandoned him. In the end, this man's testimony and his boldness in the face of ridicule led to his excommunication from the synagogue, which was an action that would have other ramifications in his life as other people around him would treat him as a pariah. So to say that in this chapter, this man's life has been eventful feels like an understatement. He's gone through a lot. And all of this while he doesn't even know the man who healed him. He knows his name is Jesus, but he never saw Jesus. He never had any other encounter or interaction with him. But as the action opens up in this section today, we see Jesus is back on the scene. And we, know, we realize here in verse 35, we read that this man's excommunication is known to Jesus. Now, when you read verse 35, it's quite possible to deduce that throughout the Jewish community, word had gotten around that this man had been excommunicated from the synagogue by the religious leadership and that Jesus had heard that from other people. But you also would understand that Jesus knows that this man has been excommunicated because Jesus is God. And before Jesus even healed this man, he knew what was going to happen in this man's life. And so he comes once again to this man. And Jesus' seeking out of this man reminds us once again how God moves in saving mankind from sin. Because we, in our natural sinful state, do not seek God. Paul would later recount in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is no one who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. You must come face to face with this fact, that you and I as human beings are born with a sin problem. And that sin problem causes us to be spiritually blinded to to the things that matter and spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins. However, as you read the Bible, you discover this. God, as the the writer, as Paul writes in one passage, but God, in his mercy, love, and grace, has reached down to us. He has given us his word. He has left us a witness of himself. He uses his word and the people who share his word to help us to see the truth of the gospel. And he makes the first move towards us that we may know him and enter a saving relationship with him. And this is so appropriately illustrated in the passage before us today. This man whom Jesus has healed doesn't know Jesus. 
We made, that, we made that remark in the first week when we looked at this, that even if the religious leaders and those who opposed Jesus said, well, come on, we're going to go identify Jesus, he couldn't do that because he'd never seen him. He'd heard his voice, but he didn't know what he looked like. He experienced Jesus' work in his life and had come to this conclusion that we looked at last time, that he was a prophet sent from God, and at the very least, someone who could be trusted, but he still needed more. And so in verse 35, Jesus comes to show this man who he is and to call for his faith in himself. And so Jesus approaches this man. At the end of verse 35, you read this. Do you believe in the Son of God? Now, your Bible might say Son of God, or it might say Son of Man. And really, the better translation here is Son of Man. Do you believe in the Son of Man? This is the title that Jesus most often used for himself, and it was a reference to the book of Daniel. There were messianic ties between Daniel's prophecy and Jesus' claiming of this title. And it's a title emphasizing Jesus' coming and Jesus' eternal kingdom. And so Jesus emphasizes here the need of this man to place personal faith in the promised Messiah. And he does this, by the way, by the very way the sentence is structured. If you were to go back and read very literally what this sentence is from the Greek, it would read like this. You, do you believe in the Son of Man? It's mentioned twice. Because what Jesus is emphasizing here is that every person, that this man must come to a personal decision to place his faith in Jesus Christ. He is calling for this man to place his faith, to place the care of his soul in the promised Son of God. So what Jesus is asking here in verse 35 is not this. Do you believe that the Son of Man exists? No, he's not asking that. What he is asking him is, do you place your faith in the Son of Man? Do you place your faith by, 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 by what he's saying there, by inference, in the Messiah? the promised one. If you will be saved from your sins and find spiritual sight and eternal life in Jesus, my friend, there must be a moment in your life where you turn from trusting in yourself or whatever it is that you're trusting, hoping to get to eternity, and you trust in Jesus Christ alone. It doesn't matter your background, your upbringing, your parents, your ideas of morality, or anything else. You must make a decision for yourself whether or not you will trust Jesus Christ. You know, sometimes you go through life and you'll ask people this question. Hey, do you believe in Jesus Christ? Do you trust in Jesus Christ? And they'll answer with you, oh yeah, yeah, I believe in Jesus. I trust Jesus. And so then you follow that up and you say, well, well, when did you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior? And this is the answer that sometimes you'll receive. People say, well, I've always believed in Jesus. And that sounds like a really good answer, right? That, that sounds like, a, well, yeah, I mean, that's great. You've always believed in Jesus. My friend, that's as foolish as you coming to me and asking me, hey, how long have you been married? And I say to you, well, I've always been married. You say, really? Who are your parents? Because I have a lot of questions, right? <laughs> My friend, on... On May 28, 2011, 
I stood before a pastor and witnesses and pledged my life and love to Elizabeth. That is the day I became a married man. And just as as you cannot say in your life, I've always been married, you cannot say in your life, I've always believed in Jesus. I've always trusted Jesus as my Savior. Because that, frankly, isn't true. You may have come from a background where you grew up going to church. You knew the scriptures from an early age. You heard the gospel on a regular basis. But it is impossible for you to have always believed in Jesus Christ as your Savior. You may have known of him and his work from that early age. But faith in him requires a deliberate decision. And maybe your family is like my family growing up, or maybe your, your kids are like our kids, that they have grown up around the gospel. They have heard the things of God. They have been in church from an early age. But you ask any parent, and they'll tell you, oh, no, they haven't always believed in Jesus. Trust me, okay? You go sit in the two-year-old nursery for a while, and you find there's some people in there who don't believe in Jesus, right? My daughter's one of them, so it's, I can say that, Okay? Now, I want to hasten to keep you from, and you and I from falling into the ditch on the other side of the road. Because this is not to say that if you do not know the time, place, date, or anything else of when you placed your faith in Jesus, that you are not his child. You may not know those things. You, you may have it written down that somebody wrote down the date that, that you profess faith in Jesus Christ. Or, or you may not remember much, if anything at all, about the time, the place, the day that you placed your faith in Jesus Christ. But that is okay. You know why? Because the time, the place, the date, the words you said are not what saves your soul from hell. It is your faith in Jesus Christ. And if you're placing your faith in, well, I... I said the words when the pastor said. I repeated all the words and, and I made sure I, you know, I, I, I was sitting in church when it happened. Then that's not faith in Jesus Christ. That's faith that you said the magic phrase. Why well, I, I spouted all the right things and so I know the password. Friend, there's no password into heaven. There is only a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. It is God's work in your heart as you confess him as your Savior. What we are saying here, what Jesus is saying here, is that you cannot excuse yourself from making a personal decision of faith. At some point, if you are a true believer in Jesus Christ, there was a decision that you made to place your faith in him alone. That was a transfer of your faith. And there was a work of God that took place in your heart at that moment as he saved your soul from the kingdom of darkness and placed it into his eternal kingdom. And that faith is informed by your knowledge of the gospel. That God showed you your sin and pointed you to his son. This is exactly what Jesus does here For this man as we continue on. Because not only do we see the divine appointment as Jesus came. But we see also in the spiritual sight. The divine revelation that Jesus gives to this man in verse 36 and 37. He answered and said. Who is he Lord that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him. You have both seen him. And it is he who is talking with you. 
Now, over the last couple of passages and messages here in this chapter, we have examined the growing faith of this man. It is no surprise then, if, if you read and, and, and were with us last week and saw the answers that this man gave before the Pharisees and that council there, what this man says in verse 36 probably isn't very surprising to you. Because this man was coming to understand that Jesus is someone who could be trusted and someone who could point him to the Son of Man, to the Messiah. And again, for your edification and your study of the Scripture, I want to make a textual note here. In your Bible, in, in verse 36, you may have this phrase, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And this really isn't super critical and super important, but it helps clarify a little bit of what's going on, and you'll see what I mean in just a second. The word behind the word Lord that you may have there in verse 36 is a Greek word, and the word is kurios. And that word has different meanings depending on the context in which it's used. And so here, because, because this man does not yet understand who Jesus is, it would be better to translate the word Lord in verse 36 as the word sir. And you may have a Bible in front of you that actually has it translated that way already. And that's just so you know, that's just where that comes from. That's a contextual understanding. That, that, that this man, out of respect to Jesus, is saying, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Though the man had not seen Jesus when he received his sight, he surely knows that this is Jesus who healed him, who stands before him. And he would most likely recognize his voice. And so therefore, since he views Jesus as what we saw last time as at least a prophet, he looks now to Jesus for the answer to this question. And here's what he's saying, that he trusts the word of Jesus, so he seeks the identification of the Son of Man. He longs to place his faith in the Messiah. And because Jesus has proven that he is trustworthy. Because Jesus has proven that he does the works of God, this man says, you tell me, sir, who he is, and I'm going to place my faith in him. This is the response of a heart that is drawn to the Savior. This is a response of a heart that is open to Jesus Christ. This must be the response of every heart that would find life in Jesus, the Son of God, one who is open to place his faith in him. Because though God makes the first move towards us as we saw in salvation, we must respond in faith. And in an incredible moment here in verse 37, we see the hopes of this man revealed in Jesus Christ. In fact, this verse is very reminiscent of what Jesus said in, in John chapter 4 when he spoke to the woman at the well. Jesus says that, that, that you have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. The one standing before him, whom this man, by the way, now sees with the vision that Jesus gave to him. That's the Messiah. What an incredible revelation, right? And by the way, what a, an amazing thing that at the beginning of this chapter, the man couldn't see Jesus physically. And now, with the sight that Jesus gave him, beholds him, sees him standing before him. He is the object of saving faith, and he need not look anywhere else. The answer is standing right in front of him. Jesus reveals himself to this man, and in so doing, he is calling this man to true and deeper faith in himself. 
Understand, it was not enough that this man acknowledged Jesus as a man called Jesus who could do miraculous things. It was not enough to know that Jesus did an incredible miracle. It was not enough to believe that Jesus was a prophet. It was not enough to even believe that Jesus was a man of God. He needed to believe Jesus is the Messiah sent to save mankind from sin. Many people believe many things about Jesus. You've probably met some in your life. You in your own heart and life at some point in your life may have believed a myriad of things about Jesus. But only belief in Jesus as the Son of God, given to take away the sins of the world, will save you from your sin. Only faith in Jesus alone, unadulterated and without hesitation, will bring you new life. And so now the moment of decision is at hand. The Messiah is revealed. The man said, I want to know who he is, that I may believe in him. Jesus says, I am him. I'm standing right here. And his power has authenticated that identity. So this man must now make a decision. We see in verse 38, the divine conversion of this man. Then he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped. What a glorious and wonderful thing we read in this verse. Because this man's declaration of his faith is very simple. And that is the glorious truth of the gospel. It is simple trust in Jesus alone. Now, it requires more nuanced thinking that we realize we must set aside any other faith. But at its core, it is as simple as placing our faith in Jesus alone. The man here believes, and I want you to note the change of context here. Remember I told you in verse 36, I said it'll make sense in just a second. And in verse 36, that word curios should be translated sir, but here in verse 38, it's very different. That's the same word. And what does he say? Lord, I believe. It's a recognition who Jesus is. It's a recognition that he's standing in the presence of the Messiah, the Son of God, the Lord of his life, his Master and Savior, the object of his faith. And immediately we see the response of his faith because not only does he place his faith in Jesus, but then John tells us that he falls down in worship to Jesus Christ. Because that word worship that's here, used here in our text, that's exactly what it speaks of. It speaks of falling down on one's knees in worship of another. And when John uses it in, in, in his gospel, John only uses it in, in divine worship to God. This man recognizes Jesus' lordship and authority as God and properly worships him. You want to know what one of the major signs of salvation is in the life of a person? A major sign of salvation is worshiping Jesus as God. It means not only do we profess him with our lips, but we also proclaim him with our lives. That's what it means to worship God. That's what it means to worship Jesus as Lord. The life of a Christian proclaims the gospel. It is a life filled with a pursuit of God. It means that we filter everything we do through the lens of glorifying God. It means we handle our affairs in a way that honors God. It means we prioritize obedience to God. 
and it means we engage with the Word of God. It also means that we handle our relationships and difficulties with others in a way that honors God, and that we grow in the things of the Lord, confessing sin, forsaking sin, and embracing the ways of God. It does not mean instant perfection, but it is not a life characterized by apathy and the dismissal of godly things. A life characterized by apathy and a life characterized by dismissing the things of God is not a life that pleases God. And by the way, it is a life that should lead us to many questions about our relationship with God. It so naturally does. This man worshiped Jesus for who he is. And his testimony shines brightly in this chapter. In fact, John 9 is almost like this beacon of hope and this beacon of light amidst a gospel that is so full of self-righteous people who do nothing but question Jesus, the Son of God. Have you noticed that? That John over and over and over again presents us with people who should have known better, but they turn away from God. So you get to John 9, you read this guy's story, and it's almost like, wow, right? Finally, someone who believes in Jesus. My friend, we need the hard truths of John's gospel because we ourselves need to be awakened out of this idea of self-righteousness and trust in our own works. We are encouraged here to see the light of the world accepted and to see the precious gift of spiritual sight received. And yet, even as we see this, we are confronted once again by the difference between this man and the others who are nearby. In the last three verses of this chapter, you see the contrast of spiritual blindness. Jesus continues in verse 39 to show that there is a natural division that comes in the world because of his work. And Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world. That those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be made blind. So as Jesus observes this man's faith and receives that rightful worship owed to him as God, he also now remarks on the division that comes through his own ministry. And at first, you might read this this verse, verse 39 of John 9, and you might think that it contradicts what Jesus said in John 3.17. For in John 3.17, Jesus said, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And now you read John 9.39, and it says that Jesus says there, For judgment I have come into this world. Well, understand here what Jesus is speaking of in John 9.39 is he's not speaking of condemning mankind. As is recorded throughout Scripture and well-documented, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. But as is also well-documented and recorded throughout Scripture, there are myriads of people who do not place their faith in Jesus. Indeed, we observed the Pharisees last week holding inquisition over this man who was healed. And we noted there the rejection of Jesus. The reason Jesus came was to bring salvation, not condemnation. That is the reason he came. The result of his coming was that those who did not believe would be condemned. And Jesus said that in John 3.18, that those who do not believe are condemned already. And so in reality, here's, here's where it comes down to it. 
if you reject Jesus Christ as your Savior, you condemn yourself. If you turn away from the Son of God, you will find eternal damnation awaiting you when, de- when you depart this earth. Something that you must understand is you cannot play games with God. He knows the heart of all men. Those who are blind spiritually and who are honest about their condition, Jesus says, will find their hope in Jesus. Jesus says that those who do not see may see, and that those who may see may be made blind. Just like this man, those who embrace the Savior are given spiritual sight. They will see Jesus Christ. They will see God the Father. They will see an eternity in heaven. But there are others who claim to have spiritual sight. And so they rejected Jesus, blinded only further by their sin. You see, in the history of mankind, the coming of Jesus is the moment of truth. Once again, as has been the case so often in the book of John, we see this point. How you respond to Jesus determines your eternal destiny. And here is the sobering truth. That just as those who seek Jesus and believe in him will be given spiritual sight and eternal life, those who reject him, Jesus says, will be made blind. As you read the scriptures and you see what Jesus says here and what God says in other passages, there is a point that you have to understand that there seems to come a point in your life in which if you reject God long enough, he will very well let you go on in that rejection. It is certainly observed in the lives of those in Scripture. Perhaps one of the most striking examples comes in the book of Exodus when you read about Pharaoh who hardened his heart against God. And God told Moses, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. You know why? Because that's what Pharaoh wanted. He wanted nothing to do with God, and so God gave him over to that hard heart. The worst thing The greatest judgment that God can levy on any human being is to leave you to yourself. Because you and I will destroy ourselves faster than anything else. And even as Jesus declares this truth, we see that there are others nearby. And we see in verses 40 and 41 the condemned pride of those that Jesus brings out. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, we see, therefore your sin remains. Here's a fascinating thing. This man has been excommunicated from the the synagogue, right? He has other ramifications in his life. People are are probably not going to associate with him. He's, He's going to suffer because of this. Yet, who's hanging around when Jesus is there but some of these religious leaders, some of these people who opposed Jesus, the Pharisees. Perhaps the Pharisees mentioned here were nearby because of their view of Jesus and their desire to find something against him. I don't think it's hard to imagine that the Pharisees were probably keeping close tabs on Jesus in order to make a case against him later on. We'll read that in John's Gospel. And upon hearing Jesus' declaration 
that there will be those who are spiritually blinded while others are receiving spiritual sight, they wish to once again flaunt their self-righteous spirituality. That's what they're doing here. When they say at the end of verse 40, are we blind also? They are asking Jesus for his assessment of their spiritual condition. But it is not genuine because once again, if you go back to the Greek and understand how the sentence is constructed, the question is phrased, it expects a negative answer. Are we blind also? And the way it's asked is, well, no, of course not. You have great spiritual insight and you are going to heaven because of your self-righteousness. That's the Pastor Andrew Standard Version, okay? Don't quote that. They viewed themselves as those who had spiritual clarity and vision. They were the guardians of the law of God. They were the self-righteous leaders of the nation. They were the ones who would assuredly reach eternity on their own merits. So they could not possibly be blind, could they? And this attitude, in fact, confirms the position of their hearts. For those who think they are good when they are not are those who have deceived themselves. And Jesus calls them out on this in the very last verse of this chapter. He tells them that if they were to recognize the condition of their hearts, they would receive the spiritual sight they believed they had. And the only way to receive spiritual sight is to realize this fact, that you are spiritually Anything else will lead you away from God. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 32, 5, I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. The only way to be forgiven by God is to recognize your sin, to confess And repent from it. And instead, the Pharisees and others like them had turned a blind eye to the things of Jesus. They rejected his teachings. They ignored his miracles. They hardened their hearts. And therefore, they suffered a horrible fate. That because they refused to believe in Jesus and because they refused to acknowledge their need of him, look what Jesus says. But now you say, we see, right? That, that, that Though they are blind, they're maintaining they're okay. Jesus says, therefore, because of this, your sin remains. Throughout the book of John, Jesus uses this picture of remaining. And most often, it's very positive that if you, uh, if you uh, uh, believe in me, you remain in me. This is the idea, that you remain in Jesus. But here, it's very negative and a a horrible thing that Jesus says, because you are professing something that's not true, because you are maintaining your spiritual uh, self-righteousness, your sin, your damnation, your guilt remains. It is their spiritual blindness that is still with them. And because of that, They cannot enter the kingdom of God. And all the while they maintain that they're okay, but in reality they have a problem they cannot fix. 
One commentator put it this way. Imagine, if you would, that you go back to the beginning of John 9 and you read it and and it's completely different. Imagine, if you would, that you read that this man was on the side of the road begging and Jesus came and, and he said to this man, he went up to him and he made the clay and he put it on his eyes and he said to the man, go wash in the pool just like he did. Now imagine you read, and a few hours later, one of his friends came by and looked at this man that he knew had been begging, and there was mud all over his eyes. And he said, well, what happened? Well, this guy, Jesus, came by, and he put some mud in my eyes. Well, that wasn't really nice, right? Why did he do that? Well, I mean, he said I should go wash in the pool, but I'm fine. Really, there's nothing wrong with me. I'm okay. I'm okay. That simple little thing that, that didn't happen, obviously, it's a twist of the story, helps you understand exactly what's happening here. Jesus has confronted time after time after time these self-righteous Pharisees. He said, you have a problem. You are self-righteous, but you're not truly righteous. You need faith in me. And they continue to say, we're fine. We're fine. We're fine. We're fine. In fact, they're saying, you're wrong. You're a blasphemer. You'll see as we continue on, you're from the devil. You can try to fix yourself and your sin all you want. You can hope that by doing good actions that you will one day feel better about yourself and your eternity. You can even convince yourself that learning what the Bible says and trying to do good things that are recorded in the Bible will help you gain heaven. But the truth is that until you're willing to admit that you are spiritually blind and without hope outside of Jesus, you will never find spiritual sight. You will instead be lost in darkness, headed for a horrible eternity. And I would implore you with this today. Don't live life like the Pharisees. Don't live life like the facetious outcome of the parable if the man just sat around with mud in his eyes, right? Say, I'm fine, I'm fine. Embrace the truth of who Jesus is today and find spiritual sight in the light of the world. Because Jesus is the light of the world, I must confess him as the only hope for salvation and the only cure for my natural condition of spiritual blindness. Jesus, the light of the world, gives spiritual sight to all who come to him. He has revealed himself to us through his word. And in these pages we read what Jesus said and what Jesus did, identifying and authenticating his identity and mission. He has lived, died, and risen again that you may be made new. He gave himself for you. Like the formerly blind man, we too must place our faith in Jesus alone. We must make a conscious decision to abandon any other efforts of salvation, for nothing else will save us from our sins. That man was excommunicated from the synagogue, but that was okay, for he worshiped at the feet of his Savior. We must fall down before him in salvation. And upon receiving new life from Christ, the natural 
normal response is a life of worship and praise. It is normal for a Christian to read the Word of God. It is normal for a Christian to spend time with God in prayer. It is normal for a Christian to abandon practices of sin and embrace the way of the Savior. It is normal for a Christian to join the local church. It is normal for the Christian to obey God's word. This is what God does to us. He changes us. And if you know Jesus as your Savior and are not seeing growth in him, if you are not finding fulfillment of him, and if you are suffering a lack of love for him, my friend, you need to examine your life. What is it between you and the Lord? Whatever it is, abandon it that you may be fully devoted to Jesus Christ. If you know him as your Savior, your life belongs to God. Live for his glorious exaltation. And I don't know your situation and your life and the personal history of every person in this room, but I do know this. There are churches across America today with people sitting in pews just like this today. And you have played the game. You have said the right words. You have looked at the right places. You have opened the word of God. You've taken notes. You've said the right things. You've come out and done good things. That's not enough. You need the Savior. You say, man, you're getting riled up. Yeah, I'm riled up. Because it's not about you and me. It's about Jesus Christ. My friend, if you have never trusted Jesus as your Savior, I implore you today to find hope in him. The light of the world transforms lives, and if you belong to him, you and I are called to shine that light abroad. At the end of the day, here's the goal. Here's the burden. Here's the mission. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about Beaverton Baptist Church. It's not about a Baptist church. It's about Jesus Christ and your relationship to him. So lay the light of the world. Open eyes that are blind, giving spiritual sight. And may the light of the world be honored and glorified and worshiped in the lives of those that belong to him. Father, we thank you for the word of God and its power to transform our lives. God, it doesn't just change us. It doesn't just make tweaks. It radically remakes us. Lord, we ask today that that word would do a mighty work in the hearts of all who are gathered here today. Lord, today there are people who sit before us, around us, in this place because they want to hear your word. They want to be in church. Why else would you give up two, three hours on a Sunday morning? Lord, I pray today that you would do a work in the lives of all who have come today, who all who hear the message. You would convict of sin today. You would show us the Savior. What in a room like this, perhaps there is one, two, three more who have never trusted you. Would you show them their need for a personal decision of faith? Would you give them the grace and the courage and the boldness to make that decision today? Would you direct them to one who can answer those questions, who can show them from the word of God 
what it means to place faith in you. At the same time, Lord, we know that there are many in this room who profess faith, who are Christians, who are believers, who are part of the family of God. Lord, we still struggle. We still have things that we need you to do in our lives. We still have ways we need to submit to you. There are those who continue to fight against the conviction of sin, who shrug their shoulders and say, well, I'm going to heaven and that's enough for me. Lord, would you convict them of sin today and show them that their lives are called to be given in worship to their Lord, that you would help them to proclaim you with their hearts and lives. Lord, we pray at the end of the day, you would receive all the honor and the glory for what is said and done. In your name we pray, amen.